Welcome to episode 10 of An Artifactual Journey. I'm your host, Philip J. Merrill, and today we're talking to Claudia Stack, who is an all-around guru. She's an educator, a film producer, a film writer, and just a really good person. I think I'm qualified to say that because I was fortunate to have met her at UNCW, that's University of North Carolina at Wilmington, at a Rosenwald conference many years ago. So I am qualified. Welcome, Claudia, to the podcast. Thank you so much. I'm really excited to be participating with you on this podcast. I really admire the work that you do examining African-American artifacts. Well, this must be a mutual admiration society because uh, I admire, respect, and am clearly in your fan circle. So let's just say kudos to both of us. How about that? Okay, so what you've caused us to do is to dig deep into the Nanny Jack and Company archives and pull out some sharecropping material. We have a John H. Glenn collection out of Virginia that encompasses about 175 pieces of ephemera from the late 1890s into the early 1920s. And what is really fascinating is that the focus is John H. Glenn, who is illiterate, and his mother is born circa 1854 in Virginia. She's a mulatto, more than likely since her occupation was a farm laborer, she could have been enslaved. And so when we sent you the crop lien, and then we were really excited about the Tobacco Growers Cooperative Association certificate and the uh, agreement and contract, because that deals with North Carolina, where you're coming from. It deals with South Carolina and Virginia. And you see the cooperative effort of these hardworking people in this tobacco industry. Traditionally, most material cultural specialists wouldn't think to look at the paper trail connected to sharecropping. And because we like to tell the hidden stories or the underreported stories, when this came onto the marketplace a good 20 years ago, I jumped at it and I'm so glad that I did. With all that, let's just jump into what you're doing and what possessed you to create Sharecrop? Uh, this has really been a long labor of love since I became interested in learning more about my neighbors' lives and their history. I live in rural Pender County, southeastern Pender County and North Carolina, and I started realizing back in 2003 that a lot of the, some of the old wooden buildings around me as I drove around my county were old school buildings that African-American families had helped to build during the segregation era when the school boards weren't providing enough proper facilities for their children. And that led me down a long road of being interested in documenting that history of these families who had basically taxed themselves twice. They paid their taxes and then they raised money again in order to provide education for their children. And some of the schools were built with assistance from the Rosenwald Fund. Julius Rosenwald was a philanthropist who worked with Booker T. Washington to start a huge school building program that really impacted the South. But out of that research and the films that I did on that, which are available on video on demand on my website, stackstories.com. I got to interject. Uh, Your website is so easy to maneuver. So put up really? a, put out a plug for your website again, please. And my website is stackstories.com. You can view trailers for all three of my feature films and read more about Rosenwald schools and learn more about sharecropping as well. So by all means, I would like our listeners to go to stackstories.com and check it out, order her films and read about some of her awards and recognition and become a huge fan of this lady's important work. Thanks, Philip. So, 
yeah, so I became interested in, as I said, the stories of my neighbors. I wanted to understand their experiences better. And it really led me down this long path that I'm still on today, you know, having formed a lot of really close relationships with some of my neighbors and having that honor and privilege of being able to sit with them and hear their stories. Now, as a white educator, did you feel as though you were invading their personal or family space or at any time did any of the folks treat you with lack of interest or, you know, like, who are you and why are you here? Yeah, I think certainly there was some of that and sometimes I still, (laughs) you know, had that conversation. To tell you the truth, I, I didn't think that I was the best person to document this school history and then later the share crop but I, I actually tried unsuccessfully for two years at the beginning of the school history project to give my research away to someone who I thought might be more qualified you know I I wasn't a filmmaker I'm not a PhD historian and uh, I'm not African-American and I tried many times to interest other people in taking the project on you know whether they were uh, people at the university where I worked at UNC Wilmington in the film department. I tried to get community organizers or church members to take it from me. I really talked to a lot of people, and and they all said pretty much the same thing, which was, "Wow, that's a great project. You should definitely keep doing that." <laughs> <laughs> so you know, people were interested, but no one, I guess, felt prepared to take it on. And really, the scope was huge and un defined and I had no grant resources at all at that time and so I just sort of carried on I had this drive to document the stories of my neighbors many of whom have passed away now so I didn't really intend at first to create this body of work but I seemed to be inspired in some way like I really couldn't rest like I I kept having these thoughts over and over again I have to go talk to this person I have to try to get a camera I have to go see this person and it drove me to do a lot of things that were out of my comfort zone but it also led me to just incredibly blessed relationships like I work with the board at the Kane Tuck Community Center which is one of the former Rosenwald schools and I so I go out there usually at least once a month and they you know, they just become good friends over time. And my dear, dear neighbors, the Faisons, Mary Faison was featured in my first film under the cut too. Just unbelievably great lady. I mean, I've met such great mentors along the way. And the woman who was featured in my second film, Carrie May in American Life, her life really reflects the arc of development of educational um, change. She was born the daughter of a sharecropper in rural southeastern North Carolina. She attended Rosenwald School. She went to a HBCU for, to become a teacher. She taught in the segregated school system. And then in 1966, she became one of the first African-American teachers to integrate the European-American faculty. My um, goodness, if you were a gambler, I would say you hit the trifecta with her. <laughs> yeah. yeah, she really was a great mentor and a great storyteller. And her life experience really reflected this whole arc of development. And so that film, Carrie May, is really a quiet film. But it's, it's her telling her story. Well, I just have to say that it's so important to follow your spirit, and which is what I do every day. And I'm so glad that you decided, or better yet, the spirit decided that you were going to take heed and follow the spirit. Because without that, we would not have this incredible body of work that you've created with the help of the black folk in uh, North Carolina. Yeah, thank you. I'm, I'm really proud of it. Not because... 
of something I did because it's not about me. Exactly. It's very flawed in some ways. <laughs> but I'm just proud that I documented some of these people's lives and stories, especially since some of them, many of them, over a dozen have passed away now. The really sharp lady I met in 2011 at the Rosenwald Conference where I was speaking uh-huh. in the afternoon, didn't she transition? Yes, that, that was it. Yes, I'm just I felt fortunate that I had a chance to briefly talk with her and she actually walked me through part of the exhibit. Oh, wow. Yeah. So she was very sharp uh, right to the end. And she always said to me, children know when you love them. And I carry that sort of creed with me all the time. Now I'm, I'm teaching again in downtown Wilmington. Um, and I've always taught in the uh, low socioeconomic schools, you know, the schools with a lot of diversity. And I felt very blessed to have as guides and mentors some of the wonderful teachers and retired educators that I interviewed for the film project. Now I'm um, teaching at a program that is very small. It's for children who uh, have mental illness or other severe disabilities so it's a really small program well i have to give you even more kudos because you're holding it down in the educational uh, classroom as well as out in the black community documenting untold stories so what a gem you are and what you are contributing to make this world a little better uh than it than it was before you got involved well i i appreciate that because i know you know as sometimes it's a lonely road like at first you start something Yes, yes. And you might be saying, you're, you know, you're the one saying through your company, Nanny Jack, and through your new escape room and all the wonderful things you're doing, you're saying, like, I have a vision, this is important, people are going to experience something, but maybe at first, maybe a few, only a few people get on board, or it's hard sometimes, but... You're a good example of staying the course, and more people are jumping on the uh, Claudia Stack bandwagon, and I'm thankful, and I'm going to do whatever I can to continue to get more people to jump on and I I just got to tell you that you don't know this but several people have reached out to me and they're willing to give me their stories about their grandparents and their sharecropping southern experiences and it's because I've been promoting sharecrop so why don't I segue to sharecrop for a minute one of the things that really touched me when I I watched the film several times and obviously each time (laughs) I focus on something different or I learn something different. And I'm sure when I watch it again, I will learn something else. And so that's exciting to me. But I, I like how you have both racial angles in the film. You have the the merchants that the sharecroppers are connected to. And then you have some really colorful people that are sharing their personal family history. And some of it's a little bit painful because as a person that is across the Mason-Dixon line, not deep in the South, you know, I just said, my goodness, these people are working from early in the morning until it's dark and their whole life revolves around working for the man. And not only that, but not being able to get ahead, but they still survive and they weren't bitter. That one praying lady just, I thought I was going to cry. She talks about, like her her mother was widowed and she talked about I mean, that resonates with anybody that has overcome obstacles and struggle and limited resources, and she maintained her faith. Yes, and that's something that really strikes me over and over again as I do these kinds of interviews, whether it's about the school history or about sharecropping. It's just the resilience and the grace that these folks have when I, I just am always just so 
impressed and amazed at the quiet grace and graciousness. They're not trying to make someone else feel bad about their experience. And they, even though they probably have a legitimate reason to complain about mistreatment in their lives, they never do. They always talk about their faith and family and how they end up pride that they take in their communities and their families. It's just really touching. Well, it, it is, and that's why I think it's really important for people that aren't fans of history, that don't understand Jim Crow, that don't understand white supremacy, that don't understand sharecropping, and don't understand just uh, the rural experience. If you live in urban America and you're a millennial, what's the connection here? Yeah. Well, here's the thing that kind of fascinates me, is as in as these and and widespread as these experiences were um, historically speaking, you know, um, for example, regarding school history, a third of rural African American students attended that kind of school, or the sharecropping after the enslaved people were freed, approximately sixty to seventy percent of them, maybe about sixty-five percent of them, were sharecropping right after the Civil War. So. You have four, approximately 4 million people being freed, and about 2.6 million of them are immediately going to this kind of economic arrangement. So you see, you, you've got to think historically, this has a huge impact on a population, you know. There were more European-American share crops just in sheer numbers, but as far as percent of the population... Was a greater proportion of African Americans who are sharecroppers than anything else. Be interesting. Yeah, and well, and it's brought out in your companion guide that's prepared by you and Dr. Catherine Wall, where some of that verbiage is clearly stated. And I think the companion guide that is such a helpful tool for all different educational groups, as you lay it out in the guide, that uh, create great talking points. Well, thanks. The guide is meant to give a context. And also, there are lesson plans in it, but it's not just for teachers. It does provide lesson plans for grades, like you could use it for anywhere from, say, fifth or sixth grade up to college. But I wrote little vignettes for each person, because the film is done in chapters. There's ten former sharecroppers, and the things that really stood out to me about each person's well, and it, it gives you something that you can go and research from. I mean, it, I can take this and now go off and, and research some of the information that you I and mean, Catherine have laid out that helped to be a great tie-in for your film. Well, thanks. I'm, I'm glad you see it as like a springboard for a better historical understanding. Well, guess what? But, You've lit a fire under us with regard to this. It's not a missing piece of uh, uh, post-antebellum and so forth, but or even going into the early 20th century, but... Uh, unless you are a focused scholar, this topic really isn't on the top of the priority list. And because of you now, I want to start going back and looking at these various families that we have collections of from uh, across the uh -huh. South. Look at the genealogical information and some of the artifacts and records and say, wait a minute, guess what they were doing? They were sharecroppers. Yeah, they, there probably was a lot of involvement right, in right. sharecropping. Right. I, I, I noticed that your work has recently been selected for a film festival across the waters. Sure, thank you. Well, I'm excited, and I would be remiss if I didn't mention that Sharecrop was really only made possible because of the support of the Middle Road Foundation. It's not 
well known because it's really a private okay. foundation. It's a private family foundation that belongs to Elizabeth Rosenwald Barrett, who's a granddaughter of Julius Rosenwald and her husband, Michael Barrett. And I met them when I was presenting my earlier films at the National Trust for Historic Preservation Conferences for Rosenwald Schools. They were generous enough to listen to my proposals for the new film for making sharecrops and to give me my first opportunity to really be able to work full-time on a film. What a blessing. It really has been. I was able to spend uh, almost three years really focusing on producing sharecrop and having the help and resources from my editor, Rich Guerin, who is just an amazing editor. I really also want to thank the Historic Wilmington Foundation here in Wilmington because they were very early on, they were supporting the efforts at Rosenwald School Documentation and Preservation. So I was able to be freed up to travel and film interviews. We went to Appalachia and Mississippi, went to Mississippi twice. Nice. And, and didn't um, you go to Atlanta? Yes, I'm all so excited and I still am. Sharecrop <laughs> um, was selected to be shown at the 2018 National Council for Black Studies Conference in Atlanta, Georgia. So that, that happened um, in March of this year. The film was very well received, mostly thanks to the efforts of Dr. Valerie Grimm and Dr. Emil Karshabag. Aren't, aren't they on your website? Um, well, they're in a picture yeah, on that's my what, website. Yeah, that's yeah, what I'm saying. They yeah, feature a picture on your website. The yes. And I just so appreciate they, they were there facilitating the discussion along with my colleague, Dr. Um, Richard Newkirk. Dr. Richard Newkirk and I, we do presentations sometimes for schools or anyone who wants to ask us to do presentations. We did some presentations at universities and conferences and for a school system that was having some racial tension. But the message is basically the same, which is, first of all, our African-American students have an incredible education heritage. And if you're an educator and you don't know that, it's my opinion that you need to make an effort to find out about it. Agree 110% and, with you on that. <laughs> I love to talk with teachers, but it's amazing how many educators don't have any idea that, you know, up into the 40s and 50s, African-American families were still raising money to buy things like school buses, and, or at least in the South they were. So, I mean, that continued on for a long time where they were asked for more than their taxes. They had to raise money over and above just to get certain basic facilities. But the flip side is the incredible culture and sacrifice of dedication to education that is shared with these stories. It comes across in your film because yes. you talk about the cost of, of buying the bus. And, and see, like you said, today, most educators, be them black or white, have not a clue with regard to that struggle. Yeah, I think that's probably true. And the reason it ties in, I went from school history to sharecropping because sharecropping was the economic context for a lot of the school buildings. So I became interested in the larger picture and the lives of the people. So that's why there's a segment in sharecropping that also addresses the school history, that first segment that I called Tobacco Road, and, and we sort of profile one of those historic schools, and one of the persons in the film goes through like what it was like to attend and how he felt about it. I, I have to admit that if it wasn't for you, UNCW, my interest in the Rosenwald School and, and early educational community involvement would have been a lot less and so because of that, when I, when I met you in 2011, we've since gone on to pull out of our archives all kinds of Rosenwald-related content. 
and even earlier black community school material that make for a fabulous yeah. story that pre Rosenwald yeah. the, the the black school community is absolutely phenomenal. It really is and you know one thing I try to always reiterate when I do presentations about Rosenwald schools is this is really in the larger context of African American dedication yes. to school building and education. Can you yeah. say that again please? I like yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> well Rosenwald schools were only part of a larger school building movement and dedication to education. The black communities were building schools before, during, and after Rosenwald School. Right. It just happens that Rosenwald Schools are the most easily recognizable movement, the largest movement, but many, many schools were created in various means, whether it was church schools, um, private academies, philanthropists from other areas. There yes. were really a lot of ways that African-American communities contributed to building schools and a bit variety of ways and where I live just happens to be uh, a place where some some examples from each of those kinds of um, school building movements still stand. There's still a tiny little frame building that was built during Reconstruction by a church and it actually served as a public school in Pender County. Until the See that that kind of built environment is so precious today. It, it really is. It's so rare and one of the things that happened to me when I started learning more about my neighbors in my area was I saw things differently. As I drive around, I interpret things very differently. You know, I see I see the tobacco barns or I see the falling down Rosenwald schools or I see, I see a row of trees that led up an old driveway, but there's no longer a house in the back of the trees, but I see the avenue, you know, and it brings my mind to that life. And so I just love to share what... You know, what I have learned, there's always so much more to learn. Yeah, and, and I got to segue share. back to your film. I, I keep going back to Sharecrop. The one gentleman who worked at the Ford uh, plant, he could show you where uh-huh. the remnant of his family property was, and it's just trees now. Right. When you're doing this kind of work, you have a greater appreciation for what was and what extent in any way. You see things through your lens now that you didn't 10 years ago before you got involved in this type of work. Absolutely. I understand things very differently. And I look at the, the different churches. And that's another thing I love to explore is the church history. And well, I, these old block, block the, buildings that are like old, um, like lodge buildings, you know, African-American uh, fraternal but, When I see you, you're barking up my tree now because I'm in love with all these 19th century benevolent societies, fraternal. And they're fascinating because they're secret. So it's very difficult to learn about the the survival of the material culture because they never wanted any of it public. Right. So, so you yeah. know, you got to look beyond the Masons and the Elks. And, you know, you have the Knights of Pythias, the, Gal- the Galilean Fishermen, the Knights of Templar, the Grand United Order of Tents, the Grand United Order Sons and Daughters, Brothers and Sisters of Moses. I mean, the, the list goes on, and they all played a major role in moving forward for the African-American community in very troubling, racially segregated times. Yeah, and in some ways, we overestimate, I think, I guess the progress that's been made as far as we say, of course, that everyone has equal access and opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> but I think what something my friend, Dr. Newkirk, has really brought home to me is that the achievements, for instance, of for instance, him and his siblings, you know, they all attended college and graduate school, very accomplished people, coming from the sharecropping family and coming from being the 
children of a, of a teacher who never had a chance to go on to do more than her bachelor's, but they're all very accomplished. And something he sort of helps me see is it's not just that we have this great open, equal society now that allowed them to advance as they have. It was a lot of those networks of formal and informal organizations that gave them strength and knowledge and strategy and the ability to move ahead. I, I agree. That That is so important. Mm, what you said is powerful. Yes, yes, yes. Well, you wouldn't know it from your your angle like we would, but through the material cultural realm, you normally see successful families or men and women and their children and other generation, you know, multi-generational during right after the antebellum and up until maybe World War II. A lot of their success is tied into these external groups that they're involved in. Yes, very much so. And, you know, a lot of people don't realize also that even in the height of the Jim Crow era, 1910, that was actually the height of African-American farm ownership. And it declined quite a bit. 1910 was the peak. It was about 14% of the farms owned by African-Americans in 1910. And now down to today, it's less than 1%, I think. You said it's less um, than so, 1%? Yeah. And so that was a tragic result of lots of things. But one of the main drivers, and um, the USDA's own internal studies have confirmed this, is one of the main drivers was discrimination within USDA programs was a major cause of land loss. Well, what happened was um, while farms were relatively small and diverse, the African-American farmers were, were being successful because they were resourceful and they also involved their whole family in working on the farm as related in a lot of the stories of sharecrop. But once once uh, what we call mecha- um, industrial agriculture, mechanized agriculture came in, um, what they call capital-intensive agriculture, where you really needed the big machines and the big um, petrochemicals to compete, then successful farms relied on loans uh, from year to year in order to buy this big equipment and buy all this fertilizer and so forth. And so the role of the USDA became much more important where they were administering the local, the local committees were administering these loans. Well, the local committees were made up of the quote-unquote best men of the community. In other words, the wealthiest landowners, though not the African American. I was going to say, you could say the white farmers. You could say, <laughs> come on. <laughs> yeah. So, by and now, there were some notable exceptions, but this was true by and large. So, these committees so at the county level would make the decisions about who would get the benefit of the USDA loans and programs. And not only did they not, by and large, give the loans to the African American farmers, but it was much worse than that. It's heartbreaking. Like if you read Pete Daniels' work and Dr. Valerie Grimm's work, they document how the sometimes these, these county committees would go after and deliberately ruin people. Like for instance, they might give someone a loan to buy like seeds and fertilizer to plant, but then deny the funds, the resources to harvest. So, so in other words, it's like a, a earlier iteration of Wells Fargo and their bad and their bad paper for mortgages and, and car loans, correct? Yeah, I guess you could. <laughs> yeah, you could say that it was set. It was designed to fail. Yeah, it was deliberate. Yes, deliberate campaign to ruin small farmers and African American farmers and push towards the big industrial size farming. So the USDA has acknowledged that that they were their own programs were a major driver in loss of African American farms, but there, I mean, there are some people now who are 
attempting to revitalize African-American farming. Um, my new short film, just called Link Urban Farm. Could you repeat that again? It's called what? It's called Link Urban Farm. Link stands for Leading into New Communities. It says yeah. l- Leading into New Communities? Right. And that's a program here in Wilmington, North Carolina, headed up by Frankie Robert. What that program does is helps people transition out of incarceration. But in the context of the LINK program, they also have a little urban farm there where they grow food for the kitchen and also to sell. And so LINK Urban Farm is just a real short profile of that program and that some of the people who were involved with it, people who had come out of prison and were involved with planting. And that material ultimately got cut out of my feature film share cut. But I said to Rich, this is too interesting and good to just leave it. On the cutting room floor, sure, sure, sure. Yeah, so we made a short film, and that's going to be featured at the Cape Fear and Time Film Festival coming up in June. Again, I, I got to applaud you for all the great work, and I, I am a huge fan and supporter. Uh, it's my wish down the road that we would be able to bring you into uncharted territories for you, which would be Pennsylvania. That would be great. I love it. Yeah, and I'm so excited that now that I have this thing going with Tug, which is a distribution platform, so if you wanted to, you could request the theater showing and they set it up for you and rent the theater which is really great right my last question for you was uh do the intellectual creative spirits wake you up at two or three in the morning and then you are on to a a new project or an old project yeah sometimes it happens that i get uh, wide awake usually not usually maybe around five in the morning i'm like wide awake and i usually get up and meditate anyway around that time during the school week but sometimes when I'm working on things, I get wide awake on the weekend and I get up and, you know, it's real quiet. I live on a small farm too and I just get up and sit there meditating or sit there with the computer and it comes to me like what to say or how to approach a problem. And I really, I, I just really feel like I've been some kind of a channel. Exactly. I feel like it's my ideas or inspiration. It, it's really, but it's kind of an inspired thing because it'll come to me like all of a sudden, like, oh, I need to, I need to have this angle on it, or I need to get, like, for instance, the idea of having Trinity Washington as the narrator of Sharecropple. Trinity was a middle school student when I was at the school where I was teaching in downtown Wilmington, just a really great young lady, and it just popped into my mind. I was like. We need something fresh. We need a new eyes on this. You know? But you saw that spark in her personality even when she was younger, didn't you? Yes, yes. She's a really such a talented young lady. And I feel like these young people, and I always involve young people in my film projects, they're, I mean, they're the ones who are going to lead us forward. Yes, you know, they, indeed. Yeah. I agree. Well, I just want to say again, I'd like to thank Claudia Stack, uh, Share Crop Stories from the South's Forgotten Farmers. Check out our website at stackstories.com. Watch her closely on LinkedIn, Facebook, but wherever you find Claudia Stack, you will find excellence. So I'd like to thank you and look forward to uh, more great work from you in the future. Thank you, Philip. This has been wonderful. I appreciate it.